soil regeneration is is everything that we do you know we are dealing with a degraded resource on this farm so everything that we do needs to be in an attempt to improve that resource so i consider this to be a, a lifelong journey we use we use life i guess to to combat the the things that we are currently facing Welcome to the 259th installment of Ear to the Ground, the Land Stewardship Project's podcast on family farming, sustainable agriculture, local food systems, and local democracy. I'm Brian DeVore, editor of the Land Stewardship Letter. Let's be honest, despite all the impressive innovations that spawned in American agriculture, the land-grant research system has not exactly been an ally of regenerative farming. In fact, The system's emphasis on input-intensive, industrialized crop and livestock production systems has resulted in some significant economic and ecological problems over the years. It's frustrating to watch the resources of all those labs, test plots, and classrooms focused almost solely on such a reductionist way of producing food. That's why it's so gratifying when an innovation emerges for the land-grant system that's actually not just one more way to boost yields of corn and soybeans, or a new twist on producing livestock in large CAFOs. Take, for example, the Forever Green initiative at the University of Minnesota. Forever Green is working to develop a variety of crops that can provide an alternative to monocultural plantings of corn and soybeans while keeping the soil covered year-round. During the past several years, the Land Stewardship Project has worked with other groups to procure funding from the Minnesota Legislature for Forever Green. By helping to fund this research, members of the Minnesota legislature are acknowledging that the future of agriculture doesn't need to be completely wedded to ever-increasing corn and soybean production, and that there are advantages to borrowing from a plant's wild side when creating a viable agricultural crop. The scientists and grad students working on these crops represent a new, more holistic approach to land-grant science and outreach. Perhaps the most exciting crop to come out of this initiative thus far is a new form of intermediate wheatgrass, Intermediate wheatgrass was first introduced to the United States in 1907 as a forage, and in recent decades, groups like the Rodale Institute and the Land Institute have been experimenting with it to develop a grain and forage crop that would produce multiple economic and environmental benefits without having to be replanted year after year. Eventually, the Land Institute developed a type of intermediate wheatgrass with the trademark name of Kernza. In recent years, the University of Minnesota has been working with Kernza germplasm to develop lines that will do well in the climate and soil conditions found in the upper Midwest. This is exciting stuff. The bottom line is that Kernza represents a key step in developing the world's first commercially viable perennial grain. Innovation in regenerative agriculture is always exciting. But what I find particularly positive about Kernza is how farmers are picking up the baton from researchers and putting their own creative twist on raising this innovative crop. For example, Consider what Caleb Anderson is doing. For the past three years, he's been attempting to boost the lifespan of Kernza on his southeastern Minnesota farm by utilizing an intensive form of managed rotational grazing. It turns out that although Kernza is a perennial, the older and more mature it gets, the more its productivity starts to wane. In fact, research and real-world results on other farms shows their productivity starts to slump significantly after the third year. Anderson's hope is that by keeping the plant in its reproductive state through intensive grazing, he can extend its productive life well beyond three years. 
Anderson, along with University of Minnesota Kernzer researcher Jake Youngers, described this research project during a recent field day sponsored by the Cannon River Watershed Joint Powers Board, Goodhue County Soil and Water Conservation District, the Forever Green Initiative, the Sustainable Farming Association of Minnesota, the USDA's Natural Resources Conservation Service, and Clean River Partners. The farmer and the scientist gave their presentation while standing in front of Anderson's Kernza field which looked to be thriving after three years of intensive grazing. After the field day, I talked to the farmer and the scientist about the economic and ecological potential of a perennial crop like Kernza. Caleb started out by describing the research project, what he hopes to learn from it, and how this ties into his hope to build a regenerative farming operation based on healthy soil. Yeah, so um, the field that we're standing near is planted in 2018. So this is the third year. Part of the, the study that we're looking at is the grazing of, uh, effects uh, on Kernza over time and how that affects uh, the harvested yield of the, of the crop. And one of the reasons why we're really interested in, in that is because we've recognized that Kernza has the, the potential to be a dual-use crop and not, I guess not, not to say beyond potential, we've proved that it can be a dual-use crop. And so in, in, in that, we are grazing the, the Kernza in, in the spring of the year, early spring, uh, mid-April-ish, I forget the exact dates so typically. So it's typically earlier in the spring. Um, we're doing it in a uh, replicated manner, three different paddocks, and we have some exclosure areas that we have for our controls. And so we're monitoring the, the effects of the grazing on the the not the the forage, uh, the, the harvested yield that's in that area, mm-hmm. and the amount of forage that grows in in the exposures or in, and in the normally grazed areas and, and over time. So we've been doing that for three years. After the, the grazing in the early spring, it'll regrow and we'll harvest it um, in late July, early August time frame. We, we'll take off the straw we'll we'll bail that off as part of the study and that's been valuable to me um, to incorporate that into my um, nutrition program for overwintering cattle and then we come back in the fall and we actually get another grazing um, opportunity so and so the the fields that we have here is six acres in size the average uh, herd size that we usually bring on to is about 55,000 pounds of of, uh, live weight and we're on the on the field in the spring, anywhere from four to six days. In the past, it's been r- closer to six. Um, this spring, it was a little drier. We did shorten it up to about four. And when we were in uh, on the field in the spring and, and and in the fall, as part of the the study, you know, we are grazing more. Uh, the this kerns are harder than we would typically graze. Um, you know, our our. Com- perennial pastures and so we're utilizing a much higher percentage um, than we would normally do to in my unscientific mind to stress the plant and keep that plant in a in a reproductive state because the the older more mature the kernza gets the the less uh, harvested yield that the crop will produce over time yeah well jake yeah what um, from a, your scientific viewpoint, what is it you're hoping to learn from something? Because you've been involved with Kernza from the beginning here in Minnesota, and I know we've got the Clearwater variety here, but what, what is it you're hoping to learn from this particular with the grazing and, and some of the other things that 
Caleb's doing here. Yeah, just like Caleb described, uh, intermediate wheatgrass, which is Kernza, was introduced to the U.S. as a forage crop. So it's got really high forage potential, and we know roughly how to manage it as a forage crop. But this is a brand new line. This was a line or a variety that's been developed for grain production. So our, our question is, can we still treat it as a forage crop or graze it in the same way that we used the old intermediate wheatgrass types that are designed for that, that were bred for that? Can we still graze these new grain type intermediate wheatgrass for Kernza and get the dual use benefits, get that forage? Um, we want to look at, at how the animals respond when grazing this at different times. Um, and then, of course, the effects of the grazing on the next year's grain yield. Mm-hmm. Is And what what about this idea of stressing it? Because is, is, I know it does tend to kind of uh, fall off in production the third year, and we are in the third year here, although it looks really good to me. But uh, is that is there something behind that that you could maybe stress it and kind of extend it over the years? Yeah, definitely. Um, and the project wasn't necessarily designed to see those really long-term effects of grazing on prolonging grain yields. Um, but we're witnessing that potential now. So this was a three-year project, uh, and it's it's due to be wrapped up. Um, we hope we can continue it and, and see if, if that uh, phenomenon of stressing the plants with grazers can keep grain yields up. Mm-hmm. So it's pretty exciting, uh, something that we've observed that we didn't expect to observe. Yeah. Well, I think both of you took us through, and, and I wonder if you could take us through this again, which I find really interesting is getting multiple economic benefits over the course of a year. Kind of take us through that year. What If you had this system in place, you know, and you haven't been doing it the last three years, but kind of how many crops, quote-unquote, are you getting out of this, you know? I mean, in, through a system like this where you are grazing it a couple times a year, that kind of thing. From the, you know, the first crop uh in quotation air quotes here yeah um you know uh, is that is the grazing so you know really looking at um the benefits there of, of because we're we're grazing it in the early spring it's right at a time where you know a, a typical grazer might be tempted to to move cattle out on the perennial pasture too early and the beauty with this crop is is hey let's let's get out and 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 um stress it at that time so we we get the option we get the opportunity to pull them off stored feed from a long winter and start grazing so it's a beautiful beautiful thing for someone that has um, some land and cattle that look looking for some options to reduce their their stored feed costs so that's how I the spring grazing I really attribute to um, you know uh, stored feed savings Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and if you look at that I mean from a high level you can spend, you know, I mean, and prices vary, but you could easily spend, um, you know, if you look at a thousand pound bale of, of hay, you know, $100 and $150, and the herd that I just described would graze, would consume about um, 1,500 pounds. So um, if, I can, if I can save four to six days of feeding hay, now, keep in mind this is a, is a smaller plot that we have here, but if it was expanded out to something larger, um, you know, you could potentially have a couple weeks of, of stored feed savings that would translate into some thousands of dollars uh, in savings just on the, the spring grazing. And then I think the economics on the, the grain um, speak for themselves. But the, the point that I'll add there is, is that being of perennial nature, 
Um, you know, we're not having to go out and plant that crop. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this particular field, um, we don't, there's really no inputs on the crop other than um, uh, we do do a liquid manure application from a local dairy farm post uh, spring grazing and post fall. And that comes at a significant bargain that time of year. And then, and then the, the, the fall grazing, it's similar economics to the spring. However, I see it a little bit different. I, I use it to let my cool season pastures rest and stockpile. And then, I'm, and then after frost, post-frost, I try to go out. and So basically giving rest for other areas of yeah. land. So you, we're at July 28th. You're going to harvest the grain in a couple weeks. Then you'll get the straw off of that, and you can use the forage. So you're yeah, kind of getting four crops off of that, four quote-unquote crops. Yeah, thanks for the reminder. Uh, yeah, so the straw, the straw, <laughs> the straw um, as I said, the first year on the six acres, we harvested 36 bales of straw with a relative feed value in the high 60s, low 70s. Last year, it was around 22, 24, um, thousand, these are 1,000-pound round bales. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, looking at, you know, that same value that I provided earlier. Now, with a lower relative feed value, the cost of that bale is going to dr- come down a little bit. But even if you were conservatively saying at $50 a bale in value, you know, times 36, you can do some quick math on a, on a six-acre plot and realize that there's some, there's some real economic benefits there as well. And we've incorporated those, you know, we call it straw, but I've actually incorporated it into our our winter feeding program will feed higher quality uh, hay bales uh, in conjunction with these lower quality but still good quality bales to extend and reduce our winter stored feed costs. Um, and you, like you did a nice comparison, like you've got field of corn across the road here and kind of comparing that per acre kind of thing, you know, roughly, this could really work out compared to the corn as far as your kind of return on investment it sounds like yeah from a you know i i like to think or try to i consider myself a low input kind of guy but the perennial nature of this crop has been a, almost a no input so ve- you know very very low uh, inputs required once you establish the crop and as we've even touched on um we're planting, we're seeding the, the crop at 11 to 12, you know, 12 pounds per acre. And, you know, so even if that was at $10 a pound, which I think it's not even that high yet, you know, the, the cost to, to input is, is very reasonable to establish. And then no, no labor, uh, no other inputs throughout the year, these last two years then, uh, being a, a perennial in nature. Jake, just kind of looking at the bigger picture, because we have a lot of folks here kind of interested in water quality issues. The Cannon River is right here, and we had a great visual here. A pit shows that the root's going down at least five and a half feet deep. They didn't, I think they got tired and decided not to dig because it's one of the hottest days of the year. So who knows where those roots end. But that was a really good lesson in not only the depth of the roots, but the kind of the mass, how it kind of, whatever. So... Talk about that. I know you've talked about that before, but we're getting benefits that go well beyond this farm when we have a system like this kind of going. Yeah, yeah. The Kernza has huge potential for water quality benefits. There's really two two ways it does that. Uh, one is the groundwater, which is our drinking water. It's where most of our communities in Minnesota get the drinking water is the groundwater. 
and we're seeing more and more issues with nitrate contamination of the drinking water because of the leaching of the, the nitrogen into the groundwater. And we've done a number of studies now uh, that are very, very conclusive evidence that the Kearns is reducing that nitrogen leaching by more than 90% compared to our annual crops. So like, there's essentially no nitrogen leaching from, through these soils anymore. Uh, and that's because of that deep, dense root system that we saw today. Uh, and then the Kernza can also hold the topsoil. And when the topsoil erodes away and washes into our surface waters, it takes with it phosphorus. So that's another major nutrient problem that we're facing. Um, so the, the Kernza can help mitigate that issue, that problem, because it holds onto the soil. We don't have to till the soil every year and loosen it up, and, it, and it's not as easy, easily blown away or washed away. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, what really struck me was... Um, uh, soil scientist John Beck was talking about how, uh, I don't know, in the first couple inches, you can maybe, when you're building that organic matter, you can get 10 inches, you can take in a, and store a 10-inch storm event. But by getting that root system, that means that's another 10-inch storm event, which we're seeing more of those with climate change even deeper in the system. I mean, that must be exciting, both from a water quality point of view, but for, Caleb, for you, for, man, we're in a dry year right now, and it's nice to know maybe you can tap some of that water yeah from from my perspective you know any drop of rain that falls on our farm we want it to stay on our farm if we have overland flow of water we've already lost the battle Mm -hmm. Um, so anything we can do to to improve our soils and have that deep deep root system is is that's attractive to me and that's something that we're going to explore kind of trying to make that connection this whole idea, I know, Caleb, you're very dedicated ever since I've met you to regenerative agriculture. You're not just sustainable, but you want to regenerate this land. And some of the things that the soil scientists are talking about is you can, through systems like this, not only bring it back some of the, kind of overcome some of the damage to the land in the past, but maybe even take it one step further and improve it a little bit. That must be kind of exciting to, to be involved with research research like this and see that it is on a practical basis can be done, but also, Jake, I'd like you to talk a little bit about how um, this idea of environmental mitigation, that it isn't just always trying to keep us at a certain, not doing any more damage, but maybe going one step beyond a little bit. Well, yeah, as I as I mentioned earlier, and, and as you've summarized, that soil regeneration is is everything that we do. You know, we are dealing with a degraded resource on this farm, so everything that we do needs to be in an attempt to improve that that resource, that and that being our farm. So, and the biggest the biggest reason for me is is I want to leave this land in a better condition than. And it was given to me, and hopefully my kids have that same passion, and we can continue to, to uh, through the generations, have a farm that is even more thriving than it is today. So I consider this to be a, a lifelong journey, and somewhere where you know there's we use we use life, I guess, to to combat the the things that we are currently facing. Those are the high-level philosophies and oper- you know operating principles of our farm. Farmers are the dominant uh, stewards of most of the land surface on the planet. And a lot of times farmers are in some ways demonized for the things that happen on the land. But here's a way for uh, farmers to actually improve the land. And they want to improve the land. So that's what's really exciting. I think providing farmers tools 
um, to improve the land, make it better than it was before they got there. Um, and that's part of the mission of the Forever Green Initiative and what we're doing at the U. The only uh, the last comment that I wanted to say is, uh, you know, one of the biggest challenges that I see is to have, you know, to, to have that diversity option. And that's what I, I really appreciate, uh, Jake and the team at Forever Green, to helping us, you know, as farmers have more options. Kernza being one of them, but they're, they're working on a number of other options. And so it's really exciting. It's, I think it's a really exciting time to be in agriculture. And we need more money to be invested in this, in this initiative and this team uh, so we can do more, you know, develop more product or crops like this and, and give farmers more options. Ear to the Ground episode 229 describes how pioneering organic farmer Carmen Fernholtz is integrating Kernza into his cropping operation. For a link to that podcast and information on the Forever Green Initiative, as well as other resources related to intermediate wheatgrass, check out the podcast page for episode 259 at landstewardshipproject.org. If you have suggestions or comments about this podcast, contact Brian DeVore at bdevore at landstewardshipproject.org or you can call 612-816-9342. By the way, it helps us greatly if you can give Ear to the Ground a rating on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or whatever podcast platform you utilize. Thanks to Laura Morgandale, a Western Minnesota musician, for Ear to the Ground's theme music. And a special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. If you're not a member... Visit landstewardshipproject.org to learn how you can support LSP. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 